0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. So we find ourselves this morning, again, with Jesus at odds with the religious leaders of his day. Um, As we saw last week, a little bit of feedback, Zach, uh, there's this issue of authority, of jurisdiction. What right... Does Jesus have to speak the way he speaks? The rabbi spoke from authority, and then Jesus speaks with divine authority. There's a contrast. I mean, think about what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus audaciously heals people on the Sabbath. He personally forgives sin as if he is the one who has been sinned against. He raises the dead by speaking life into dry bones, occasionally even touching dead bodies. He eats with sinners, tax collectors, draws near in compassion to loose women and lousy men. He calls down judgment on the pinnacle of Jewish religion, the temple itself, even prophesying its impending destruction. He rides into Jerusalem as a king on a cult, laments her unbelief, and so much more. All of this provoking the religious leaders. And if you think about it, it makes sense that this type of response would come about. Um, C.S. Lewis once said, Jesus produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Hatred, terror, adoration. And so where is Jesus in Mark chapter 12? Um, We know from chapter 11 that Jesus is teaching in the temple. And as he's teaching, he lobs a parable at the religious leaders. Um, A parable is kind of like an allegorical story that uses practical realities, everyday realities, to teach spiritual truth. And this parable is unique for two reasons. First, it's in three out of the four Gospels, which is unique. And then secondly, parables tend at time to hide the truth, conceal the truth. But this parable is very plain. It is not difficult to understand. Um, Jesus is making the point very clearly with this parable that the religious leaders who are kind of functioning as the theological gatekeepers on behalf of God and for God are not only mistaken about themselves, they're dead wrong about God, about salvation and what it means to truly follow after the Lord. Um, and so with that being said, let's put our eyes in the scripts and let's read Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And Jesus said, "And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some fruit of the vineyard. Verse 3. And they, the tenants, took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And he, the master of the vineyard, sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Verse 8, And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray for understanding. Father, you are glorious in who you are. Glorious in what you do. Your works are great, oh God. And we praise you this morning. It is right and fitting to give you praise. And so Lord, as we come to this teaching and preaching moment where we're sitting under the word, God. Give us clarity of mind. God, remove distraction. Father, we pray in the next 30 or so minutes as we look at your your holy and sufficient and true word, God that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of it. God, help us to see ourselves in this parable and respond accordingly. Father, I pray that you would remove me out of the way, that the truth of the gospel would be proclaimed in all its beauty, and that you would have your way in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. If you're a note taker, here's truth number one. Truth number one, God graciously reveals himself for our good and his own glory. God graciously reveals himself for our good and his own glory. Look back at the first five verses. So Jesus began speaking this parable, and it opens uh, with a man creating a vineyard. And so what is the social social situation of this parable? Uh, Remember, Jesus utilizes everyday things to teach spiritual truths. And so... By the time of Jesus' day, it was pretty common for wealthy foreign landowners to own land and then lease it to tenant farmers. The tenants then agreed to cultivate the land, care for the vineyards, while the landlords were away. And so, essentially a contract between them designated that a portion of the crop was to be paid as the rent. So the tenants don't own the land, they're just cultivating and farming it. It is owned by a wealthy landowner out of country, essentially. So at harvest, the owners would tend to send people on their behalf to collect the rent. And so this, this situation is has existed in Israel as early as 300 years be to, before the time of Christ. And inevitably, there was tension. Uh, there was problems here. Because it came down to this. Who really owns the land? Is it those working it day in and day out? Or... Is it whose name is on the deed of the property? And so, as you can imagine, there's, there's problems here. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front what each person or each uh, individual stands for in the parable, if it's not clear already. So, obviously, the master or the owner of the vineyard is God. God. The vineyard is a people. Israel. The people of God. The tenant farmers are the Jewish leaders. Pharisees, Sadducees. The servants are the prophets, and of course, the beloved son is Jesus. And so, what does the owner of the vineyard do to show his care? He plants the vineyard, which means he has to get the land ready. He has to till it. He has to seed the area. He has to remove any hindrances, remove weeds. And this is hard work. And then he puts a fence around the property for protection from robbers uh, who might take the crops or wild animals who might eat it. He he digs a pit, creating a wine press. He even builds a tower for storage, for shelter, as a lookout post. The beginning of this parable is meant to show you the owner has been intimately involved with the creation of this vineyard. Uh, You're supposed to be reminded of creation and the story of Israel here. I mean, think about the Old Testament, how it opens. Um, As you know, God exists from all eternity past as a triune being. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, completely satisfied in himself in this mutual dance of delight, of joy, and glory. What does this triune God need? Absolutely nothing. And yet, what does he decide to do? He creates, lovingly creates And then invites people into that joy, into that glorious endeavor. He wants people to have a relationship with Him. And then if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, it pictures God as getting in the dirt to create image bearers. People who would live with and for Him and showcase His glory across the globe. Genesis 1 and 2, perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect love between God and man, until sin enters it. And instead of God burning down the garden, destroying the vineyard because of sin, He begins to raise up a people for Himself. He remains steadfast in His devotion to the vineyard, to the garden. And if you know your Old Testament well, even Israel's history is described using this vineyard metaphor. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 4. It's on the screen for us. Let me sing for my beloved and my love song concerning his vineyard. A love song. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me, that is God, and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So the picture here is the owner is not apathetic about the vineyard. He loves the vineyard. He he is working on behalf of the vineyard's good. The vineyard being the people of God. But it doesn't just stop there. What else does God do to show his love... Over the vineyard. The master begins sending his servants to receive the fruit of the fields, to check on the property, to get what he is owed. Um, and like I said, the servants of the, are the prophets of old. And we know this because all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are called the servants of God. Listen to Jeremiah 7. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And so God, in love, to reveal himself, to draw his wayward people back to himself, and to ensure his plan for the world was made known, raised up servants, raised up prophets, To speak on his behalf. And and the purpose here of Jesus is to depict the deep mercy of God. Um, God has not left his people in the dark. Maybe if we are ignorant of God, it isn't because God is silent. He has spoken. He has raised up ways to reveal his purposes in the world. And so how... Are the servants treated? Servants sent on behalf of the master. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. They're mistreated. They're brutalized. And I want you to notice the progression of the brutality. The first guy is beat and sent away empty-handed. They just stomp a mud hole in him, send him packing. The second guy, they beat him, but they strike him on the head and treat him shamefully. So the first guy... Got beat. The second guy got beat worse. And look at number verse 5. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. The wickedness grows, and the cruelty of treatment gets worse and worse and worse. And I, I, this, is a, this is a typical thing in the Old Testament. Of how the, the prophets, speaking on behalf of God, are treated by the people of God. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 and 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. May that be said of us. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I mean, Jeremiah was beaten, thrown into a well. Some were stoned. Isaiah cut in two, according to Jewish tradition. John the Baptist literally losing his head. God has graciously, lovingly, patiently revealed himself to sinful, wicked people. And that offer has been repeatedly spurned. It has been repeatedly rejected. I mean, listen to Isaiah 65. Look at verse 2. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people, his people, who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. God graciously reveals himself for our good And for his glory. Look at truth number two in this passage. From verses six through nine. God generously sent Jesus for our good. And his own glory. God generously sent Jesus for our own good. And his own glory. And so what does the master do? I mean he keeps sending prophets. He keeps sending servants. So he decides to send his final emissary on his behalf. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. And if you think about it, if you're the original hearer and you're hearing this, the plan almost seems foolish, doesn't it? I mean, you're you're listening to the parable. Your your jaw is dropping and then your jaw drops to the lowest point when you hear he's going to send his beloved son after how the servants have been treated. And so again, the landlord's optimism is a subtle hint at the character of God. God is patient, loving, kind, gracious, and even willing to look a fool as he holds out grace to an obstinate people. Wow. Listen to Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or even again in Second Peter three nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so the big, the, the million dollar question here is, who's who's the beloved son? And in Mark's gospel, there's only one person, one man, that's called the beloved son. And that beloved son is Jesus himself. Mark 1.11, at Jesus' baptism, you hear a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And again, at the transfiguration in Mark 9, God the Father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so in Mark's gospel, the, be- the beloved son is obviously Jesus the beloved. And so the owner reasons, maybe, just maybe, they mistreated the servants because they're just that. They're servants. They're hired hands. They will respect my son. Who else could be sent with the very authority of the father but the son? And then what do the tenants decide to do? They decide to kill the son. This is the heir. Come let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And so they reason somehow that if they kill the son, they themselves will become the sole owners of the property and reap all its benefits. And there is a social convention of the day that said if the owner of a vineyard did not show up within three years, he didn't send anybody on his behalf, he didn't show up, he's MIA, that the tenants could lay claim to the land. And so when an owner failed to show up, the idea was the owner has passed away or the owner does not want the vineyard. But that is not the case here, is it? I mean, he sent people on his behalf. He has spoken. He is not disinterested in his vineyard. Killing the son in their mind was the final hurdle hurdle in owning the land. And they don't just kill him. Look at what they do to the body of the beloved son. And they took him and killed him and threw him, the beloved son, out of the vineyard. And so in complete disregard, they throw his body out and refuse to give him a proper burial. If you know your Bible, this is an allusion to what will happen to Jesus in just a few days. They mock him, they beat him. Crucify him publicly in front of his own mother outside of Jerusalem. And he's placed in another man's tomb. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, 12 and 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. And so the question is, baby, what is the owner of the vineyard? Going to do. They've killed his servants, his hired hands, and worse still, they killed his beloved son. What is the owner going to do? He doesn't let it go. He has every right to be angry, righteously angry at how his beloved son has been treated. It says he will come and destroy the tenants. And he will give the vineyard to others. And at this point I want to pause and just say this. We cannot mistake the kindness of God for weakness. We must not mistake his patience for compliance or acceptance with evil. We should not presume that a delay of justice is a denial of justice. How they treat the son has a direct relationship with how they are treated by the master of the vineyard. And it is the same today. He destroys the wicked tenants and he gives the vineyard to someone else. He does not destroy the vineyard. Notice that. Remember the vineyard's the people of God. He doesn't throw away the vineyard. He goes for the tenants of the vineyard who know better. And the vineyard being given away to others is likely an allusion to Gentiles being included in the covenant. Listen to Matthew 21, 43, the parallel account. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the religious leaders, and given to a people producing its fruit. Last truth from verses 10 through 12, this parable ends. God sovereignly works through evil for our good and His own glory. God sovereignly works works through evil for our good and his own glory. Look at at verses 10 through 12. Have you not read this scripture? (laughs) The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, the religious leaders, were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And so how does Jesus understand the plot to kill him? And the religious leaders' rejection. And the response to that is, it is all according to plan. Brothers and sisters, God is not powerless in the face of evil. He cannot be held hostage by the sinfulness of man. I mean, there are things moving and happening in Jerusalem in 31, 33 A.D., and it looks like Jesus is held at at, at its whim, by its sway, but he is the master of the sea. And he controls the wind and the waves, and he controls every act of evil that is being used against him. And he is going to use it for the upturning of evil itself. It is all according to plan. Look at what he says. Have you not read this scripture? And Jesus quotes from the same psalm, Psalm 118, that his followers quoted in the triumphal entry. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so the picture here is someone is building a building and examines a stone and he throws it away. This ain't a good rock. This ain't a good stone. It doesn't meet some standard. And then someone else comes along, someone else who's building, and then finds the same stone, examines it, and then places it in the most important location of the building. And so the picture here is the religious leaders examined Jesus and found him lacking, despite him, Jesus, being the most important part of the building. Right? I mean, how how wild is that? I mean, listen to the way Jesus speaks about himself or or the, the early Christians speak about Jesus. This is Ephesians 2, 19 and 21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ the cornerstone. Or 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, which is what we've been doing all morning. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Why does Jesus' self-understanding in this very moment matter? Jesus will be a victim but he is a willing victim who knows what he is doing. It says, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus understood who he was, what he was supposed to do and what the outcome would be. A cross before a crown, Good Friday before Easter Sunday. And it was prophesied Hundreds of years before Jesus of Nazareth is bebopping on the scene. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord, the same will to crush him, shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 750 years before the fact. And I want you to ask yourself this. Picture, like, you're there. And you're, you're the religious leaders. How do you think the religious leaders are, are feeling in this moment? Like, how, is, how are these little truth bombs landing on them? And so at first, you can't tell from Mark chapter 12, they don't have a clue. Um, They miss the point completely. They actually fail to see themselves as the bad guy in the parable. Um, And we know this from the parallel account in Matthew 21. And so the same question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? This is how the religious leaders respond. This is Matthew 21, parallel count, verse 41. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. They respond, oh, the master of the vineyard is going to come and destroy them. And boy, if that isn't a picture of what sin and pride does to people, they are blinded when the parable is first said, having no idea that the parable is aimed at them. They respond with, yeah, damn them, destroy them, give the vineyard away to someone more deserving, and then it hits them, oh, snap, we're the bad guys. Like, we're, we're the men that the parable is aimed after. The Jewish leaders are the vile, incorrigible, deadbeat tenants of God's vineyard. They have already conspired to murder Jesus, and he calls them out in front of everyone. Their hush hush rumors behind closed doors, their wicked plans, and the murderous plot are all part of God's glorious plan of redemption. You're not going to bootstrap the Lord of glory. The tenant's destruction, the giving of the vineyard to others, and the transformation of a rejected stone into the capstone or cornerstone are marvelous to the ones who have eyes to see God's plan. He is a victim but he is a willing victim. His face has been set like flint to Golgotha for his people, for us and our salvation. And the actors that are playing are not in charge of the master of the play. So how then should we respond? I mean, a heavy parable. They respond, I'm gonna kill him. How do we respond looking at this parable? So, I have three applications, three takeaways. God forbid we hear something like this and just hear it. Here's the first takeaway Understand that this is the Master's vineyard, yet we are called to labor in it. Understand that this is the Master's vineyard, yet we are called to labor in it. We cannot evade God in this world, we cannot successfully push Him out. We are merely servants in the vineyard, not its Lord or its owner. But, brothers and sisters, God in His great mercy includes us in the work of cultivating the vineyard. We all have a responsibility, a privilege, if you will, of serving and working for the vineyard, the people of God. Where is the Lord calling you to tend to His vineyard? sitting over dinner last night and somebody said we're struggling to find nursery workers struggling to find community kids workers struggling to find youth workers where is the lord calling you to tend to the vineyard that wasn't even in the notes where is the lord calling you to tend to his vineyard you're not meant to just show up eat the fruit of the field and then duck out while others labor in this vineyard and and y'all i'm not trying to guilt you into serving i'm trying to grace you into serving because serving the Lord is one of the most satisfying things you can do. I mean, what greater reward than serving the master of the vineyard by caring for one another and seeing one another blossom into all that God wants them to be? I mean, you've got to you have a hand in that, a role in that. What could be more opulent and delightful in the master of the vineyard's eyes? And again, he doesn't throw away the vineyard. He does away with those pickleheads who are terrible tenants. We're now tenants in the vineyard. Labor among each other for the vineyard's good. Takeaway number two, examine yourself. Be humble. Take heed lest you fall. We tend to read ourselves as the good guys in these types of stories. Um, We don't want to be associated with the stubborn, malicious, and selfish tenets. But remember this. Understand this. The Pharisees didn't begin like they ended up by the time of Jesus. That's a process. If you know a little bit about the history of the Pharisees, they show up on the scene after the second temple was built by Ezra and Nehemiah. And they emphasize the right things. The Word of God following the traditions handed down by wise leaders in the past, teaching ordinary people the truth, and honoring God by living a holy life. Brothers and sisters, they started out well. They started out with the best of intentions. They were sincere. But by the time of Jesus, the religious leaders had become utterly corrupt. And that did not happen overnight. That is a process. Take heed lest you yourself fall. How quickly can the things of God turn into the things of me with a God label placed on it? How quickly can Austin DeArmond's kingdom seek to rival the eternal kingdom? How quickly can pride, hubris, and selfishness replace sacrifice, love, and mercy? Beloved Christian in the room, watch out. You're not the center of the universe. The center, the solar system of God's glorious purposes does not revolve around you. You're not the star of the show. You may have this idea that you cannot or you just will not play second fiddle to Jesus. But let me tell you this morning, if you're going to play in God's orchestra, you're going to be second, third, fourth fiddle. Because someone else is the star of the show. And it is not you and me. And so, second takeaway, be humble. Examine yourself. Don't end up like the Pharisees who started out well. And then last takeaway, accept the crucified Messiah as your Lord, Savior, and treasure. Accept Him. We cannot appreciate the cross as something done for us Until we recognize it is something done by us. I'm going to say it again. We cannot appreciate the cross as something done for us on our behalf. Until we recognize it as something done by us. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To the unbeliever in the room if you have not accepted Christ why the delay what are you waiting for there is no one else left to come the servants have been sent the beloved son was the last one to go for us and our salvation what are you waiting on if you're trying to fix it yourself That's not an option according to the parable. Someone had to be sent on your behalf. Therefore, receive him in all his glory. Listen to Spurgeon here. If you do not hear the well beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused, no one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. The beloved son has been sent on our behalf. And the vineyard is his vineyard. And he has done great things to cultivate the field of God's salvation. And unbelieving in the room, I invite you to it. <laughs> I mean, the pastors of the world are not good. You know, they they say the the, the metaphor about grass being greener on the other side. The grass is brown over there. All right. The grass is green in Jesus' pasture. Come and graze and find what your soul has been looking for. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for what the master of the vineyard has done for his people. God creating us, loving us working for our good, calling our sin out, putting our sin upon the shoulders of the beloved son. Lord, we praise you for such a good and beautiful salvation. And so, Lord, we pray as we respond in worship that we would worship wholeheartedly, sincerely, worshiping the Lord of glory himself who stepped out of time and glory to make us glorious. And Lord, if there is one in the room who doesn't know you, may this be the day of salvation. May they, right where they're setting in this moment, look away from themselves, put their trust in you, and be transformed and made anew. We love you, Lord. We praise you, and we pray all these things.